Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. Tonight I want to talk about the harvest of grain and grapes. Uh, You'll see what I mean when we get into this. Uh, But before we start, I wanted to share a story with you that will hopefully remind us of an important truth. Uh, There was a story one time about an agnostic farmer who wrote to the editor of his newspaper. Um, And uh, the uh, agnostic farmer knew that the newspaper editor was a Christian. So he wrote to him and he said this, In defiance of your God, he said, I plowed my fields this year on Sunday. He said, I dissed and fertilized them on Sunday. I planted them on Sunday. I cultivated them on Sunday, and I reaped them on Sunday. As if to say, how about that, right? He said, this October, I had the biggest crop I've ever had. How do you explain that? And the newspaper editor said, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. Period. (laughs) And that is true. Uh, We do know that there will come a day, there will come a moment in time when God will settle accounts with everybody, and uh, that is the final judgment. Well, we're going to get a glimpse of that in dramatic fashion, you might say, here at the end of Revelation 14. Um, Look, if you will, in verse 14. I think I'm just going to read this through, and then we'll break it down. He says, Then I looked, this is John talking, Then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and one like the Son of Man was seated on the cloud, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the time to reap has come, since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Then another angel, who also had a sharp sickle, came out of the temple in heaven. Yet another angel, who had authority over fire, came from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the earth, because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle at the earth, and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth, and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. Um, The literal terminology there would have been 1,600 stadia. Okay, 1,600 stadia. Now, again... We are at a fork in the road, and there are a lot of them in Revelation. As you read the book of Revelation, there, time and time again, we're going to come up against a passage where you can talk to a lot of people, and they all have a different idea, and I put myself in that category, okay? So uh, what is going on here? Well, if we were reading the entire chapter of Revelation 14... I believe it would make a little bit more sense. I want to remind you of of context here. Uh, There's already been a proclamation from three different angels, starting in verse 6 all the way through 
um, verse 9, there's three different angels that are making proclamation statements to the earth. So there's three angels. Then in verse 14, where I began to read, was one like the Son of Man seated on a cloud. And then in verse 15, another angel came out of the temple. Now, what's interesting here is this passage, according to Herschel Hobbes, and I would agree with him, this passage presents two harvesters, each with a sickle. One there in verse 14, and then the other one in verse 17. Um, <clears throat> many interpreters use these two symbols as judgment, and they compare this passage to Joel 3. So let me, let me jump to Joel 3. And uh, stick with me for a minute, because right now, if we were in a plane, we're just circling the airport before we go in for a landing. So I want you to kind of take in the view before we dive into this passage. In Joel 3, 13, it does use some imagery that reminds you of this passage in Revelation 14. Joel 3, 13 says, Swing the sickle, because the harvest is ripe. Come and trample the grapes because the winepress is full. The wine vats overflow because the wickedness of the nations is extreme. Very poetic, very fitting for what we're reading here in Revelation 14. Uh, but because in Joel everything is judgment, a lot of times when people come to Revelation 14 and they see this in light of Joel 3, they assume that there are, is one harvest with two harvesters and it's all judgment. Um, some people don't think that this is Jesus in verse 14, but I would have to say it has to be, okay? Uh, the text makes a distinction. There in verse 14, one like the Son of Man, that's Christ. We'll prove that in a minute. And then there's another angel with a sickle uh, in verse 17. Uh, some people distinguish between these, and as uh, Herschel Hobbes says, they see verses 14 through 16 as Christ gathering the saints, and then verses 17 through 20, an angel gathering the unsaved for a judgment, and that is his position, and I would have to say I would agree with that. Now, let me read a quote from uh, Herschel Hobbes, and then we will officially dive in, okay? He says, simply because Joel chapter 3 verse 13 refers to reaping for judgment, that does not mean that both reapings here in Revelation 14 are identical. The context has to decide. In other words, when you don't understand a passage or a verse, go back and look at the context, what's around it, what came before it, what follows after it. In Revelation 14, there are two distinct harvesters, one there in verse 14, and the other there in verse 19, where the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered grapes for the, for the vineyard. Uh, nothing is said about the disposition of grain in the first part of the passage, um, but it is about the grapes in verse 19 and 20. Uh, the implication, he says, is that Christ reaped the grain and put it in his uh, storage house, if you will, uh, or granary, and the grapes were placed in the winepress of God's wrath. And so he says, on this basis, it seems that we have two harvests, one of the righteous, one of the wicked, and this dual idea is seen throughout Revelation, and he cites verses for that. Now, 
I would uh, have to agree. Let's look at this. I'll, I'm going to teach it. That's the way I, I view it. That's the way I interpret it. So we're going to look at the harvest of the grain. Okay. Here is uh, John. He sees a white cloud and one like the Son of Man is sitting on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Notice the cloud. We know that when we look at Scripture, when, we, when we're dealing with clouds, we're always dealing with divinity. We're dealing with God. All the way back on Mount Sinai, when the glory came down, it was in a cloud, when the cloud descended on the mountain in Moses' day. Um, when uh, Solomon dedicated the temple that he built to God, uh, a cloud filled the temple, and it was full of God's glory. Um, in the uh, time of the um, destruction, well, later on in, in the Old Testament, when God's glory left Israel, remember Ichabod, the Ichabod moment, the same cloud left the temple. The glory of God left uh, through the demonstration of a cloud. And then if you go to the New Testament, remember Jesus on the mountain, transfigured before three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, was surrounded by a cloud. And um, when we read Jesus, what he said in Matthew uh, 24, he said that he would be coming back where? In the clouds. Uh, but there's one that really reminds me of the Lord when I think about clouds. And we were talking already about Old Testament passages that Throw up images that remind you of things when you read it in Revelation. Well, how about this? Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Check this one out. Daniel 7, uh, 13, and 14. Uh, Daniel the prophet, he says, I continued watching in the night visions, and listen to this, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, what do we have here in Revelation 14? A cloud and one like the Son of Man seated on the cloud. He says here in Daniel 7, 13, He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before Him, and He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve Him, and His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. That gets me excited every time I read it. But uh, that Son of Man is Jesus. If you study the Gospels, Jesus, one of his most famous uh, and favorite um, titles that he used referring to himself was Son of Man. Son of Man. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, we are told plainly, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. We know that Jesus is coming back in the clouds. Later on in that same chapter, Revelation 1 verse 12, um, John hears a voice and he turns to see who it is. And he sees seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Not only here is Jesus called the Son of Man, but we have the same exact phrase, like the Son of Man. And so when you get to Revelation 14, 14, 
and you see a white cloud and one like the Son of Man, who is it? It has to be Jesus. Now, some people that are skeptics of this will say, well, I just don't think that's Jesus because in verse 15, the very next verse, this angel comes out and basically they'll say, tells him what to do. And there's a pretty good explanation for that, but I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. I just want you to be thinking about that. So we've, we've looked at the cloud, and uh, now let's look at the crown. Notice that one like the Son of Man is seated on the cloud, and he has a golden crown on his head. Now, the word for crown here implies victory. It's not the royal crown. It's the victory crown. Okay, and so it it points us to the victory that Christ has accomplished for us when he overcame death, hell, and the grave through his resurrection. And so there again, a crown on his head. It's Stephanus, not diadem. Then you have the third thing. You have the sickle. So here is one like the Son of Man on a cloud with a golden crown and a sharp sickle. He is ready to reap and so um, here's where people say well I don't think that's Jesus because in the next verse another angel and some people want to say because it says in verse 15 another angel they'll say well then that means that one like the son of man is an angel again context 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 if you read the whole chapter you will find in chapter 14 of Revelation, you'll find that there are three angels that make proclamations to the earth in Revelation 14, 7, 8, and 9. Three angels. Then one like a son of man, and then another angel. Okay? In all, there are six angels in this chapter. Three in verses 6, 7, and 8, or excuse me, 7, 8, and 9 then the Son of Man, and then three more angels, one in verse 15, then another in verse 17, and yet another in verse 18. So three angels, Son of Man, three more angels. So when it says another angel, it's not referring to the Son of Man, it's referring to the other three angels that it just talked about. And then some people go, well, wait a minute, I just can't see Jesus taking orders from an angel. Well, again, let's read it again. Verse 15, another angel came out of the temple. The temple represents where God dwells, right? When we're on earth, you know, we always think about, you know, God, God built that temple in Jerusalem years ago under Solomon. And he says, this, this is where my name is going to dwell. And so ever since then, we kind of associate in our minds that, you know, a temple is where God dwells. Well, this isn't an earthly temple. This is the heavenly temple. And here is an angel coming out of the temple, crying in a loud voice to the one seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the time has come since the harvest of the earth is ripe. What did Jesus say when he was on earth? He said nobody knows, you know, when he's coming back. The angels don't. Not even he doesn't know, only the Father. At this point, the Father has told the angel, tell my son it's time. 
That ought to get a little hair too excited. Amen? And that's what's going on right here. And so as Dennis Johnson says, in Revelation 1-7, the promise, He's coming with the clouds, refers to Christ's second coming, so that John and his hearers have good reason to identify the harvester here in verse 14 with Jesus. Uh, and yet some object to this, considering it beneath Christ's dignity to receive God's command through an angel. And citing the mention of another angel as evidence that the one like a son of man is also an angel. Yet this picture shows his submission to the Father's timing of which, Joseph, of which Jesus spoke about while on earth um, in Mark 13.32. And I, I don't think I pulled that one up. I'll read that one real quick. Mark 13.32. That's what I was talking about a while ago. And I will read that real quick. Let's see here. Mark 13, 32. Now concerning that day or hour, Jesus said, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Okay, so there you go. Um, the harvest of the earth is ripe, literally. Uh, if you study this, when he says, use your sickle and reap, for the time to reap is come, since the harvest of the earth is ripe. And that word ripe at the end of verse 15, it literally means dried up. Okay? Dried up. You know, I used to live in farming territory. And um, it was always, always curious to see how long they would wait until they harvest corn, you know? And uh, some of them that are going to use it for feed for their livestock, they let that corn. I mean, it goes from green to brown. And you, then you're like, man, are they going to get it or is the fall rain going to wash it, you know? But they wait till that stuff gets just uh, dried up to the bone. And then here comes that combine and they gather that corn. Here, the earth, uh, the harvest of the earth is ripe. It's literally dried up. And it's a perfect word and it's a perfect image to describe grain when it's fully mature and ready to harvest, okay? Uh, so that's why many believe this is a grain harvest. And so in verse 16, the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth. Now isn't that interesting? He swings his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Boom, that's it. Not much there, is it? But um, that's what we are told. Um, as Herschel Hobbes says, at many other times in Revelation, another angel came out of the Holy of Holies, of the heavenly temple, and this suggests uh, God's mercy. So the word here for temple in verse 15 is not just temple in the generic terms, but it's the holy place in the temple. And that suggests that, uh, you know, God is in the Holy of Holies, and he's overlooking the mercy seat. And now word through an angel from the Father to the Son says, Look, the time is ready. Harvest the earth. And so the Son of Man does. We're already told here that uh, those who know Christ, you can distinguish them. There at the very beginning of chapter 14, 144,000 to represent all Believers who have the name of, of the Lamb and the Father written on their foreheads. Now, here's the thing. 
Here's why I believe this is a harvest of grain and it refers to God's people and not, not those who don't know God. It's not just because of some imagery from Daniel in the Old Testament and uh, what was the other one? Joel uh, 3 in the Old Testament. But we have even more revelation than that. We have the teachings of Jesus when he was here on earth. And I want to cite that very quickly before we move on to this second part. In Matthew 13, Jesus was uh, teaching parables. And in Matthew uh, 13, verse 24, he presented a parable, and it goes like this. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and left. And when the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the wheats also appeared. So the landowner's servants came to him and they said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and pull them up, they asked him. No, he said, when you pull up the weeds you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. When Christ comes back, there will be a harvest, and there will be a separation of the righteous and the wicked, because He knows who is who. And so it'll be a grain harvest, a wheat harvest. Now, in case you think I'm reading into this, let's jump on down to Matthew 13, verse 36. And here is where he explains this parable to his disciples. In Matthew 13, 36, Then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples approached him, and they said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He replied, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. There you go. What did I tell you about Jesus? He likes that title, Son of Man. And, and, that, and that amazes me because I would have thought he would have used Son of God, wouldn't you? I mean, he's, he is the Son of God, but he's also the Son of Man. And so he's referring to himself. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good seed, these are the children of the kingdom. And the weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather from His kingdom all who call sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. And then there's one more passage that paints a picture of what it's going to be like when Christ comes back. It's Mark 13, verse 24 through 27. Jesus says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. 
He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And so here comes Christ, the Son of Man, coming in the clouds. And when He comes and He's told it's time and He swings the sickle, guess what? Then all of the elect, all of His people from the four winds of heaven, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, will be gathered together. And that is compared to a grain harvest. And that's what's happening here. There's not much more detail uh, than that, but at this point, there doesn't have to be. Because we're already told that He's distinguishing the righteous from the wicked. He already knows those who are His. And when it's time to gather His people, He swings the sickle, and it's done. Then, the other side of the coin happens in verse 17. Then another angel, like the previous three angels in verses 7, 8, and 9, comes. And he has also a sharp sickle that comes out of the temple in heaven. And then another angel, number 5 at this point, who had authority over fire, came from the altar And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the earth because its grapes have ripened. And so the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. The whole time I thought, grapes of wrath, grapes of wrath, right? So we, we talked about the harvest of grain. Now let's talk about the harvest of grapes. The harvest of grain is the gathering of the righteous. The harvest of grapes is the judgment of the wicked. And we've just read that. I like what Herschel Hobbes says. He says this, this angel here in verse uh, um, 17 did not come out of the holy of holies where God dwelt in mercy. Okay? He, he came where the altar was located. He came from the altar. That was or verse 18. Uh, he had authority, this angel number five, had authority over fire, and he came from the altar. So uh, he's, he's coming from the altar. That's the location that he's coming from. And he had power over fire. And he raises the question as to whether this is the altar of burnt offering or the altering of incense. We don't know. It could be either one. But the suggestion seems to favor the altar of incense, which reminds us of prayer. Because if you've been following along in Revelation, go back to chapter 6 for just a moment. In Revelation chapter 6, and that's been some time back, after the fifth seal of the scroll is opened, in uh, Revelation 6, 9, when, the, when uh, Christ opened the fifth seal, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given, and they cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? And so they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number that would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. And so they're crying out for justice and they're told to wait, wait just a little bit longer. And now here we are in chapter 14 
and the wait is over. The grape harvest has come. The sickle is slung and the grapes are gathered because they're ripened and they are thrown into the great winepress of God's wrath. And so at the time in Revelation 6, they were told to patiently wait upon the Lord until He judges the wicked. And it certainly looks like that's happening right here in Revelation 14. So perhaps the angel that came from the altar came from where the prayers of God's people were going up. How much longer? How much longer until you judge the wicked? Well, guess what? That angel comes from that altar and says, swing your sickle, it's time. And that's what you're seeing here in the harvest of the grapes. William Hendrickson says it well. He says, in the picture that John sees, he sees a lake of blood. And it's so deep that horses can swim in it. Notice what it says, that the press uh, was trampled outside the city uh, of the wine press, that is, in verse 20, and blood flowed out of the press up to the horses' bridles. We're talking what, Reese? About, about up to here? <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, that's pretty deep. You and I can swim in that. And it's for about, about 180 miles. So, so it's a lake of blood. It's so deep that horses can swim in it. And it spreads out in all directions to the extent of the literal term here was 1,600 stadia. And depending on your English Bibles, some will say about 180 miles, some will say about 200 miles, but roughly about that, that, that amount of distance. Now remember, uh, there's different ways of looking at that. Um, remember that four is the number of the universe. Uh, uh, this is the judgment of the wicked. Ten is the number of completeness. So some say that 1,600, which is four times four, tens times ten, would seem to indicate that this is a complete judgment, which certainly it, it is. I mean, already Christ has swung his sickle and harvested the righteous from the earth. And so now here are the grapes from the vineyard of the earth that are thrown into the great winepress of God's wrath. So this is a complete judgment worldwide. Uh, Hobbes says, The forces of evil may shed rivers of the blood of the saints on earth, but in the end... The situation will be reversed, and that's what you see here. All of these people who don't know the Lord, and their demise is pictured as grapes that are being trampled in a wine press, and they release their juice, and then it says blood is everywhere. I know that's gory, I know, but that's what it says. G.K. Bill says the spreading of blood for a distance of about 200 miles from the city corresponds with about the length of Palestine, measured from Tyre to the border of Egypt. So in other words, if you were to measure the Holy Land from top to bottom, about as long as it is is about the same distance, not to the mile, but roughly speaking, as this is. So the idea is that everywhere they would have walked, they would have seen the results of judgment. Blood is everywhere. Everyone has been judged. It's a worldwide judgment. Now, let's kind of wrap this up and let's think about what this means for a minute. I like this one quote here from Dennis Johnson. He says, The end of history, therefore, will bring not only a great grain harvest at the saving sweep of Christ's sickle, 
to gather his faithful followers, but also a great grape harvest as Christ's enemies are gathered to be crushed in the winepress of God's wrath. So my handle for you tonight is this. Here's my thought, and it's just really one thought. Consider the implications of the final judgment. Consider the implications of the final judgment. Now, this, this is how we broke down this part of Revelation 14, but what I want to say to you is the truth of it, that there will be a judgment of the righteous and the wicked, that shouldn't be strange to our ears. I want to give you a few verses. If you want to jot these down, you can, but I'm going to give you a few verses here, one from the Old Testament and a few from the New Testament that emphasize the reality how God will separate the righteous from the wicked and there will be a final judgment. King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 17, he said, I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked since there is a time for every activity and every work. Now that comes from Ecclesiastes 3 where there's a time to be born and a time to die and there's a time to do this and there's a time to do that. There's a time for everything. There's also a time for judgment. Okay, In Acts 24, when Paul was bearing witness to the gospel before, I think it was Felix and Agrippa, he said in Acts 24 verse 15, I have a hope in God which these men themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection both of the righteous and the, uh, and the unrighteous. And then he went on to say in the next verse, I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men. The reason why Paul strived to have a clear conscience is because he knew that every one of us is going to stand before God someday. And because we're going to be raised from the dead, the righteous and the unrighteous, we will have to give an account of what we've said and done to God. And that's why he says, I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men. And then we have the very words of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was on this earth teaching. In John chapter 5, he made a big, bold statement. Listen to what he said. Jesus said, For just as the Father has life in Himself, so also He is granted to the Son to have life in Himself. And He has granted Him the right to pass judgment because He's the Son of Man. Now, I've got to stop there for a minute. How many times have we seen that statement or that title tonight, Son of Man? Isn't it interesting Jesus is saying that the Father has life in Himself. He's self-existent. I mean, in the beginning, God. He's self-existent, okay? He's not created uh, in the beginning, God. He's always, always been there. He's the great I Am, okay? And He has granted to the Son, Jesus, to have life in Himself. That's why later on in John, Jesus says that He had the right to lay down His life and he also had the right and authority to pick it back up again, okay? And then he says, not only has he granted the Son to have life in himself, but then Jesus says that, that the Father has granted to the Son the right to pass judgment. And you might say, well, what gives him the right to judge? 
You know, you go out in the world, you talk to people, well, who gave you the right to be judged, right? Well, I'm glad you asked that because here Jesus is saying that the Father gave him, gave him the right to pass judgment because He's the Son of Man. Notice what He didn't say. He didn't say, I'm giving you the right to judge because you're the Son of God. He didn't say that. He said, I'm giving you the right to judge because you're Son of Man. What does that imply? Because He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He's both. Okay, I'm not splitting hairs here. Jesus is fully God. He's Son of God. He's fully man. Son of man. He's completely divine, completely human. The only one that's ever been that, that meets that, that qualifications. But He's given the right to judge because He's the Son of Man. That means He came and He lived and walked among us. And He tasted temptation just like every single one of us. And yet, the Bible says, he never sinned. So here is Jesus, the God-man, who now has the authority and the right to judge because he's been in our shoes. He's the Son of Man. Boy, that's powerful, isn't it? Well, let's go on. He says, do not be amazed at this. And I would be. I'd stop right there and go, whoa, slow down. You know, I'm amazed at that. Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but to those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing on my own, says Jesus. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will but the will of Him who sent me. Wow. So if you think it's amazing that Jesus has the right to judge because He's the Son of Man, He says a time's coming when the, the, the graves, the people that are dead in the grave will hear His voice. And we know it happened with Lazarus, but it's going to happen to everybody. And the dead will be raised and they will be judged. And He will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. So, what do we do with this? Well, I think it's kind of simple at this point. My big question is, are you prepared? Now, let me tell a quick story on that. I didn't ask if you're ready. I said, are you prepared? I had a guy named Noah years ago, uh, Herman. And uh, he and I were talking one day, and he says, you know, he says, I'm prepared, but I'm not ready. And I thought I knew what he was talking about, but I didn't want to, you know, guess. So I said, well, tell me, Noah, what do you mean by that? He says, I'm prepared because I know where I'm going. I know that I'm saved. I know that I, I've got Christ in my life, and I know that when I die, I know where I'm going to be at. I'm prepared. He says, but I'm not ready yet because I still want have some living to do. And I still want to see different people do things, and we all do, right? So I'm not asking you tonight, are you ready, okay? I'm asking you, are you prepared? Have you settled the most fundamental issue that we all have to deal with in life, our mortality? 
We don't live forever. And someday, one day, we're going to die. And someday, one day, Christ is going to come back. And someday, one day, we're going to stand before Him and we're going to have to give an account. And you don't wait till the day of a final exam to study for a test. You have to be prepared. And you can't wait till the day that Christ comes and you stand before Him and hope it goes well. Or hope that He'll be in a jolly mood and change His mind as if that's what the issue is, because it's not. We will all stand before Him and we'll have to give an account. And if we're prepared, we will say, I lived my life realizing that I was a sinner and I came to the foot of a bloodstained cross and I cried out to God and I asked Him to save me from the wrath to come. And now I am covered by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and I know that I've got confidence in judgment not because of anything I have done but because I received the free gift of eternal life from Christ Jesus my Lord who paid it all on my behalf. If you can say that, then you're prepared. If you can't say that, then again, I want to remind you, at the end of the day, there's only two kinds of people in this world. Those who know God that will be with Him forever, and those that don't that will be separated from Him for all of eternity. That's it. And so I want to encourage you tonight to think about this harvest of the grapes and the grain and ask the Lord to show you who you really are and don't put it off don't wait another day don't wait another week month or year get things right in your heart in your life with God and then tell somebody okay don't be a silent Christian tell somebody what Christ has done for you and uh, share that Uh, it's a joyous thing Well, let's all pray for just a moment. Father, we come before you tonight. Thank you for this time in your word. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us of the harvest that's coming. That one day, when you appear in the skies, you will gather the righteous and you will judge the wicked. There'll be a separation between the two. And Father, I pray that all of us will search our hearts and seek you and make sure that we're prepared for that day. Lord, I pray that we'll find that the only hope we have is in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.